You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. So today I am welcoming a very special guest to the show, Maisha Hill. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jen. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I've I've had the privilege of being on your podcast on co-conspired conversations, and that was really awesome. I think that was actually my first time being interviewed, so that was a lot of fun. But today we're going to be discussing our book of the month, which is How to Be Less Stupid About Race. But before we dig into that, I want to talk to you about what you do, because to me, you are an absolute inspiration. So I would love for you to tell us about what you do, the organizations that you've started, check your privilege and just everything that you do, because I'm sure there is a lot that I don't even know about. Absolutely. Um, so thanks again for having me, Jennifer. I'm Maisha. Um, I go by Maisha T. Um, but if you can call me Maisha during this interview, that's fine. Um, what I do, that's always the question. I'm a master of many things, but um, I have my own LLC um, with three brands. One of those brands is my Maisha T brand, where I do public speaking on issues around mental health, uh, parent advocacy for special ed, special uh, needs children, because two of my children have autism. One of them has ADHD. And then I'm also speaking on race, power, and privilege. I also do life coaching. And I have a product line that I also run with that business. I also have a marketing company. My background is in marketing communications, and we work with creative entrepreneurs and small businesses. We help them position themselves online, and we create graphic design websites and products for their businesses. Um, wow. Check Your Privilege. Check Your Privilege started a year ago after I had conflict with an associate. Just by setting a simple no boundary, it just created a lot of conflict. It started as me interviewing a series of white women, trying to have an understanding of how they're keeping their privilege in check. So that Black, Indigenous women of color feel safe around them. I interviewed about nine women last year. That evolved into a online lounge, which has evolved into workshops, community workshops. So yeah, I am pretty busy. Yeah, wow. So with Check Your Privilege, I met you through that on Instagram. Yeah. Is that your main platform for Check Your Privilege? Or do you yeah. get more involvement through Facebook? What social media platform do you tend to get the most involvement through? Yeah, so I've been testing the waters here the last 90 days to pick which one I'm going to stick to. And it's definitely Instagram. Um, because there is a free Facebook community, but we could probably talk about this later. I'm noticing when a person of color leads the conversations, there's this awkward silence that happens as like, it's like people don't know if they should respond or if they shouldn't respond. Um, but on Instagram, I get a lot of engagement. So Instagram is the main platform that um, you can find a lot of the Check Your Privilege content on. Okay. And so for those who are listening to find Check Your Privilege on Instagram, how is it spelled? It's spelled C-K-Y-O-U-R-P-R-I-V-I-L-E-G-E. -E. So Check Your Privilege. I had to awesome. shorten it because someone's using the, the other name. Okay. Excellent. So 
You said about a year ago you started Check Your Privilege in response. And how has this been going, developing this community? What have you been learning? What is your hope for future growth and development? Wow, that is such a good question. The whole premise of Check Your Privilege was created not to shame white women, not to silence white women, but to keep white women accountable to their actions and actually guide them towards making better decisions and taking more action in community. Um, Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've learned is at leading these workshops is that there's so much guilt and and fragility and so much space that has to be held. One of the things that happens in anti-racism work is that women do get shamed and women of color get silenced into shame. So white women come with this guilt and shame and women of color, I'm speaking for myself, we get silenced into shame, which leads to guilt. And so one of the things that I'm finding is that common humanity. So with Check Your Privilege, I kind of come with a mindfulness approach to it. What is our common humanity in this work? Our common humanity is that we want systemic change. We're going to get everything wrong all the time. No one's going to be perfect. So why don't we just get it wrong together and still keep doing the work? That's one of my greatest lessons. Something else I've learned is that it's easy for white women to ghost the process. It's easy for them, who I work closely with in community, to be head on when there's moments of injustice in society. So if Mm -hmm. someone of color is killed, I get more engagement on my posts and I get more engagement on my community. The moment I step back and have a moment of like introspection and reflection from that or speak up, then the silence continues. So there's this uh, this ghosting, this perpetual ghosting that keeps happening that I'm seeing from white women. And I'm not sure. I think my lesson here is how can I keep you accountable if you keep running away? My grandmother used to always say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, Maisha. And so I can only just keep trying to pull you back in, but... It's this perpetual ghosting that's really frustrating. So what does ghosting look like for people who are listening who might not be familiar with the term? Right. So it's similar to ghosting in relationships, right? So let's say you're in relationship with someone and then they all of a sudden just break off, right? They Mm. see all communication and contact with you, you as their partner without any warning or justification. They just disappear from all communication. And so that's actually happening in the community that I've had with a group of women for almost six to six to 12 months. We're at not at 12 months, six to nine months. Um, there's this ghosting um, and it's silent. So not only is there this ghosting that's happening, there's what I call like the white silence. And it's that awkward silence of not saying anything, but I also believe that silence is also an answer. But I just keep going. I'm very active in the community. I'm very active checking in on women. Even the check-ins I send out, women aren't responding to my check-ins. So I'm not too sure what's happening, Jennifer. I don't know if it's shame, guilt. I'm not sure. I'm just here to try to hold women accountable. And I just keep going. That's interesting. So then how many people are in this particular group that you're talking about? community I have right now, there's about nine women. Okay. And this is a community of women who were dedicating themselves to this process. Right. And the process okay. is pretty simple. We have a prompt of the month, right? And then we do a weekly deep dive. And then there's a group accountability call, video call. And there's wow. a little bit more, but you'll have to kind of dip your toe in to see what I'm talking about. But yeah, no, yeah. we could have like a good 90 day spin and then the season changes and then there's the ghosting. The one thing I've always said, and I say this on social media all the time, this work is super stressful. 
I don't expect for anyone to be doing this. Well, there are people who are in this all day, every day, 24 seven. But if you're new right. to work or if you're just now getting into the work, even if it's just five minutes a day, even if it's just once a week or you're taking a deep dive, that's enough to just start. Yeah. Because if if you do overcommit yourself to a process, maybe that's what ghosts you because in your overcommitment, that's when life happens and you can't handle like, oh, how am I going to do this work and take care of my family and plan family vacations? And, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's all about like honoring your commitments, but also managing your own time and your reality in the process. Yeah, that's an interesting point. But you had said something earlier about people who are there when there is a brutality or a killing or something really covered in media. But then when it comes to the day to day, they're not there. Yeah. What do you think behind that? And what do you think if, if somebody who's listening is thinking, yeah, that's kind of me and I want to break out of that, what would you say to them to help them reassess the way they're approaching things? I think that if you don't see it, it, it just is not present in your face, right? So, right. you know, there's this perpetual reality that White people aren't used to Black people's pain, like the experience of Black people's pain. So seeing that now in the media and portrayed heavily in the media when things happen, I think it like speaks to the emotions and white folks just kind of jump to like this saviorist idea of like, okay, something bad happened. I have to do something. Yes. So it's like this initial knee jerk reaction to like, okay, there's Black pain. How do I fix the Black pain? Mm. Not like, how do I not just fix the Black pain, but Black and Brown, I don't want to say just Black, but how do I not just fix the pain? How can I let that sit with me, unpack it for myself first, and then go out and take community action and solidarity, not just during this incident, but ongoing. Mm-hmm. And then something I would tell the, your your listeners um, is it takes 30 days to break a habit that some scientists say, some scientists say 90 days. So rather than try to focus on all the areas of social and race, racial justice, pick one thing. Mm-hmm. If one thing is, oh, I can only read this book, How to Be Less Stupid About Race for 30 days. Then let that be your one thing to focus on. But you're still doing your work, even if you're reading a book, right? Maybe your one thing is, okay, pers- a trans woman of color was just murdered. Step one, what is my relationship? Relationship with trans women in my life? What do I know about that community? Step two, what do I know about the communities of color that have trans women? What do I know about the trans community of color? Like there's different layers to it to kind of ask yourself to do some self-work and then go mm-hmm. into action. Number three, I'm going to spend the next 30 days working with, I'm just going to use San Francisco community mental health and work specifically with the population of people of color to help X, Y, and Z. But do you kind of get my approach, Jen? There's this idea. Oh, yeah. What can I focus on for 30 days to keep doing this work? And then once you get done with that first 30 day, go into a review and don't like super applaud yourself because I don't want you to celebrate like, oh, I'm anti-racist now. No. Right. (laughs) This is lifelong work. But then if this is the topic that you choose, like violence against trans women of color, let that be your topic for the rest of the year. But just focus in on that. Mm-hmm. In bite-sized pieces, whether it's a book third for 30 days, whether it's taking five minutes a day and um, joining different conversations in online spaces, focus on one thing and one thing well. That's what my coaches always tell me. I think that's awesome. And I think it's really important because there is so much. And I think with our 24-hour media cycle and Instagram and Facebook and all of these different social media platforms, it is really easy to start off thinking you're going to run this sprint but it's a marathon. And so you have people just taking on everything and anything they can get their hands on and then they burn out. Yep. 
And so then, and this is something I absolutely love about your approach. And so for anybody listening, if you're not following Check Your Privilege, it's an absolutely wonderful Instagram page because like Maisha is saying, she starts out with today, here is your daily action. Today, here is your daily reflection. You give very tangible ways to step into movement as well as calling people to task for their own internal work as well as, so I, I really appreciate your approach. It's very, very thorough and thoughtful. And that's not something you see a lot. You know, I, I mean, it's clear that you're doing this work in your life, right? Yeah. It, 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 you know, this work, Jennifer, thank you for that. It has to be super intentional and you don't want to burn out. And I think because like you said, in the 24 hour news cycle, multiple anti-racism educators, all this content just kind of being thrown at you. There's no focus. And when you don't have any focus, everything is just mm -hmm. normal. I'm thinking of one of my clients. I just recorded his, one of his uh, taglines, but without focus, everything else around you is just pure noise, mm. pure noise. And so it's really this intentionality practice behind, okay, in this fight against anti-racism, what's my focus? But how do I do my self-work? How do I take care of myself? How do I take action? How do I do my internal work? And how do I have focus about it? I think this would be a great time to move into discussing how to be less stupid about race. And this is a book written by Crystal Fleming. And I found out about the book because of you. So it seems only perfect that you're on here talking about it with me. Tell me what led you to this book. How did you hear about it? In the community I have with the women, we have what's called Book Club Brunch. And I was looking for our first book. At the time, oh. everyone was raving Robin, Robin DiAngelo, like um, white fragility. And I'm like, no, we don't start with white people in this space. We start with people of color. So I right. actually went to the Beacon Press website and I saw how to be less stupid about race on the on the front front page. And that's how I found it on their website. And I was like, is this a black woman talking about race and she's a sociologist? Let's get it. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, let's get it. <laughs> so it was pretty much that simple, right from Beacon Press from their website. One of the things that you really challenged me on initially, like when I first started the podcast back in January, we were going to do a book of month and I had some friends who had recommended White Fragility. And so I'm like, well, we might as well get around to reading that. And so we went from that to another one. And then when I saw your book and also your challenge that we should be learning from authors and teachers of color on these topics. I was like, yes, how do we find them? You know, and, and just wondering, like, who are these people and where are these books? And there are hundreds and hundreds of amazing books, it seems. Yeah. So many. Like, you yeah. So surprised. Like, but we don't know it because the hype right now, no harm, right. no foul, Rob Dr. D'Angelo, everyone's hyping her work. And so you would never know who the leaders of color are unless you do a by happen search. But they're right. So did you, yeah, did you hear about the anti-racism book festival? Yes, I did actually. Oh, that was so awesome to see. I wanted to be able to be a part of that so much, but I just, you know, I could not make it happen in life. That was another amazing space to see all of these different authors. And I know D'Angelo was there, but the majority of the authors were people of color. Yeah. And that was amazing. So I was really excited about that. I feel like I have a whole 
whole world that has opened to me in terms of authors and books and resources. And it's really exciting. So I was really excited to host this book and to discuss this book. So I thank you for that. You're welcome. I love this book. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me, what did you think of the book? I started with the audio book and I was like, this is too good. Let me get the hard copy. This book Uh is freaking phenomenal. It says how to be less stupid about race because Dr. Crystal breaks this down in layman's terms to the point where you have a full understanding of critical race theory. She speaks to every issue that you need to learn about beginning your journey in anti-racism work. Like the origins of racial stupidity. That was actually the introduction. Um, and that was actually one of my favorite parts in the book. Can I read like some of the subheadings of this chapter? Yeah. There is. Um, so I'll read this part. She says, On page 15, there are a number of fallacious ideas about white supremacy that I'd like to address up front. These include the KKK fallacy, the gaslighting fallacy, the class fallacy, the whites only white supremacy fallacy, the political fallacy, and my perfect, my personal favorite, the black supremacy unicorn fallacy. Mm. And she breaks down each of these fallacies in such a profound way. I don't know. What do you think, Jen? Yeah, I mean, I loved the breakup of the fallacies there. Here's what she says in the beginning. The origins of racial stupidity. Hundreds of years after establishing a nation on colonial genocide and chattel slavery, people are kind of, sort of, maybe possibly waking up to the sad reality that our racial politics are still garbage. But as our society increasingly confronts the social realities of race, we are faced with the barrage of confusing developments. How could the same country that twice voted for an Ivy League educated black president end up electing an overt racist who can barely string together two coherent sentences? <laughs> and then she goes just a little farther down. Everyone has an opinion about race, yeah. which is so true. Like 99% of the population has never studied it. Yep. And even many textbooks that talk about race are filled with lies, inaccuracies, and alternative facts. So with so much racial ignorance in the world, how will we ever find our way to that glorious mountaintop Martin Luther King Jr. glimpsed right before a white racist killed him? And so she goes on to talk about how it's an inherently divisive topic, the cause of much controversy and endless debates. And I like this point. She says, there is exactly one thing and one thing only that we can probably all touch and agree on regardless of our racial or ethnic identity, gender, age, political beliefs, or shoe size. We are surrounded by racial stupidity. (laughs) Mic drop. And so, like you said, then she gets into why, right? Like all of these fallacies that she takes on one by one. And I thought that was so incredibly illuminating, you know, because you're you're going along. Did you have this experience where you're listening? You're like, yes, (laughs) yes. Yeah, you're listening. You know, I've never put it that way or heard it that way. I've never heard it that way. Or like, oh, this is so simple. Thank you. Right. I had moments of driving and having to pull over and listen again. Like, yeah, you say that? That's powerful. Which parts of the book stood out to you? So you shared about the intro and these fallacies. Are there other things that stood out to you? Um, There are chapters two and three. Um, Listen to Black Women. Mm-hmm. In the chapter three on racial stupidity in the Obama area. So listen to black women was pretty powerful because, you know, we, we hear and see a lot of mm-hmm. in this chapter. She she breaks it down how white male supremacy socializes us to devalue the critical insights of black women and girls. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. 
we're always being silenced and we never have full autonomy to be our full self. That's how I can describe it. And to see her put those words into print was so meaningful for me. Because I'm like, how if, if so many people could read these words, specifically white women, they could have a deeper understanding of trust Black women and listen to Black women. It's just, not just a meme on social media, but there's this socialization behind it that you've actually learned how to devalue who we are as women of color. Mm-hmm. And I've also just being in business, Jennifer, I can, it relates to me in business. Like I've had several white women who've always tried to undercut me, but will go work with my competitor who might be white and pay full rate prices. But there's always this devaluation of who I am and what I have to offer as a Black woman. Yeah. And in the same chapter, she talks about how it's tiresome having to point out how Black women are stigmatized and silenced because of this system. Right. Um, but if we as Black women don't do this work, who will? Mm-hmm. Because there's a constant need to contest our erasure while also supporting adjacent liberation movements. And that's what's mobilized Black women into action for for centuries. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So you also mentioned chapter three, which is on racial stupidity in the Obama era. Yeah. Now, this chapter, I'm going to say, say blew my mind. Yeah. You know, I remember when Obama was president, hearing a lot of people say, Obama's not doing anything for our community. Obama's just a puppet. Obama. And I'm like, what are you guys talking about? What do you mean? Mm-hmm. He's our president and he's Black. What are you saying? Nothing matters. Look at America. Look at the change. <laughs> right? Like you, I downloaded the book and listened to it because I'm crazy busy. Right. But I also had to go and buy the book because I know the author gets the money and the support when you purchase the book. So that's an important thing to me. And I love being able to sit and to underline things. So I thought it was interesting because just for people listening to give a little backstory, Crystal was a spokesperson for the Obama campaign in 2008. And she was in France at the time working on studies. And it was really interesting because she talked about her relationship to, um, the the campaign and how she got caught up in the excitement of everything and really believed in the message and then how it slowly started to crumble based on uh, policy things. And so she said, little by little, I felt myself beguiled by the promise of a black president and soon succumbed to what would become known in France as Obama mania, the technical term for the intoxicating hypnotic state of madness <laughs> that results from sipping Barack's neoliberal colorblind Kool-Aid. And this was really interesting to me because I wasn't living in the country at the time either. I was actually living in China. So I missed so much. And particularly because I lived in China, it's locked down there. You get one news station and it was CNN International, but I didn't have regular access to the internet and wasn't online. So I missed all of this. I came back to the U.S. during the second election cycle. Okay. So one of the most common refrains is, well, we had a black president. Well, what about Obama? And she really talks about sort of the psychology behind that. On one hand, you had people who thought that voting for him meant they weren't racist oh, or that they didn't have any racism. Oh, I can't be racist. Okay. Right. 
And then everybody loves to say, we had a black president. Our country is no longer racist. But she really spoke to some of the colorblind rhetoric that he even espoused. And I thought that was really helpful for me to understand, okay, how did all of this come to this point? Like, how did we get where we are? What happened there? So what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it takes me to, you know, I have highlighted chapter one, page 102 in the chapter where, so, you know, for me, when this whole election thing happened for me, it was just like, with my with my living ancestors, like, oh my gosh, we're going to have a black president. What? What? There was never any thoughts of like thinking about policy and how he's going to support the community. And is he going to see white supremacy or how does he feel about racism? Right. And so mm-hmm. I was kind of blindsided as well. And so when I started hearing even family members say things about the Obama administration, I was still very passive. And I had a, I had my, as a black woman, colorblind rhetoric about Obama and what it meant for us as a community. Um, Mm -hmm. But reading this chapter in the book again on page 102, where she talks about Obama being caught between a rock and a familiar hard place, like the competing need to calm white fears and signal black authenticity or Obama never condemning police officers who murdered unarmed black people or he never lectured white law enforcement with the same patronizing and moralizing tone that he used to lecture black audiences. That's so true. And and you can kind of see how even with us having a black president, he never acknowledged or criticized white supremacy because he picked his side. And a lot of older folks would say he had to pick a side. He had to assimilate so he could keep his job. Like, what was he supposed to do? But then there's that reality of like, but we see what happens when we have a racist 45 in office now versus when we had Obama. So what would have been the differences in, in rhetoric, right? Maybe for mm. Obama, it, President Obama, it could have been the fear of losing his life, right? So right. this chapter was a whole wake-up call. And Crystal's right, like, he chose the side of white supremacy and neoliberalism for the same reason other minorities make this choice. Internalized oppression and naked self-interest. Mm. He had to choose that side for internalized oppression and naked self-interest. So on page 103, I have this paragraph just circled. And it says, being less stupid about racial politics means understanding that politicians, yes, even people of color, combine racist and anti-racist ideas mainly for the purpose of appealing to racists and their victims. Absolutely. And I have goosebumps reading that. But I feel like that is one of the most poignant statements that really captures this rock and hard place that you're talking about, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That, so that was that was really challenging. It's it's so hard. It's so hard. And it's and, and, and I actually have a question for Chris if Crystal listens to this. Like, I wonder if she thinks it's even if it's just being less stupid about racial politics, or is it more than just being less stupid about racial politics? Mm. Because I, I, I know even in business, which is kind of a form of politics, there's a form of combining racist and anti racist ideas. Like Let's talk about marketing. Like I know if I use certain colors and fonts, I'm going to attract someone with who can afford my services, right? Like I can go and be like, right. hi, X, Y, and Z. This is going to cost you five thousand, five to $10,000. Whereas I can't use that same color palette and those fonts to attract a different audience to pay that same amount of money. It's crazy. Wow. The mess, right? Even marketing messaging has this still combination of racist and anti-racist ideas. 
And we know marketing messages are like that because you have to look at Trump's campaign. Make America great again. He knew what he was doing from a marketing perspective. Oh, absolutely. All right. So on to the next. What else was there for you? So we've we've covered a little of chapter three. Yeah. Um, any other chapters that really stood out to you? Yes, I have so many sticky notes. I'm gonna. I know, me too. <laughs> I'm like, I'm gonna skip the 45 chapter just because we talk about him every single day. Me too. Like, yes. I'm over his name. I'm over his number. I'm over him. Yes. Um, but the fake race to lose chapter. Yes. <sighs> talk to me about that because that one was like, oh, I was amening all over the place on this one. Were you? <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> the quote that she uses in the chapter, I'll start there. It's by Ida B. Wells and it says, it becomes a painful duty of the Negro to reproduce a record which shows that a large portion of American people abo anarchy, condone murder, and defy the contempt of civilization. And I think this, in this first section, she even talks about how it's been normalized, um, the shock and awe phenomena, especially with this white nationalism movement. It's normalized. It's normalized in the media. It's normalized to a point where we see certain things and we're just like, oh, okay, yeah, we're used to it. You hear about Trump supporters now. In the beginning, there was outrage, but now we see how the Trump supporters have been spread out in the media so long. Like no one has a reaction to it anymore. Right. Because it's fake racial news. And what that does is it makes conversations of white supremacy disappear. Mm -hmm. um, and I really believe this was the intentional goal yeah. of the administration. Yeah. To be honest with you, it's like, let's fatigue this. Let's go with this. And I've heard other anti-racism activists say that they, they could care less about Trump. Yep. They care about how you're going to be present after Trump leaves office because everybody's worked up now. Everybody's talking about how white supremacy is an issue today because Trump is in office. Yeah. But that's not the case. Right. And so she refers to it right as the normalization thesis. So it's this idea that and and I think the very creation of this normalization thesis, so to speak, is that I almost feel like it is an example of white supremacy. So let's get everybody worked up right now about white supremacy. Blame it all on Republicans or blame it all on the Trump administration right. or blame it all on Trump because that others it again. So for liberals and, and people who are, you know, who I coined the well-meaning liberals, like they get to distance themselves from it. They get to say, that's them. I'm part of the good guys and it's that good, bad binary. And it only continues this damaging idea that separates people from realizing like, no, I have my own internal work to do and I need to get to it and stop worrying about and blaming other people and look at myself. Does that make sense? Because I feel like I'm rambling well, a little bit. Really, and it kind of speaks to when Crystal in the same chapter talks about the two-faced racism, the study uh -huh. by Leslie Pika and Joe Fagan. It's the two-faced racism, right? You know, where the public nature of the racist performance, that's a problem, is not white racism itself. Mm -hmm. So it's the same racist comments and behaviors that many whites tolerate and participate behind closed doors become problematic and inappropriate in public. And so for many whites, it, white racism, or it's not white racism or systemic dominance. It's failed public performance of being non-racist. So it, yeah. it's this good, bad binary, but it's also this, this performative action around being white and being anti-racist. Yeah, and that's a whole discussion too, right? Yeah. Like just performative allyship and the way that that has been encouraged on some level. 
in movement as we dig into this topic more and explore moving on this. Um, And and the media companies are white owned Mm -hmm. and they continue to perpetuate minorities derogatorily, justifying white violence towards people of color. I'm reading a little bit from the chapter in the book. It's just the media is a powerful player in racism by promoting this fake racial news, this fake racial stories of black men being predators or Hispanic men being drug dealers and white men and women being the saviors and the victims. We see it at the Oscars every year. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And specifically in the news, it's just these patterns of bias and popular culture. If white supremacy has been embedded in this country's history, right? And they invented TV programming. They knew that programming would be a way that they could change the narrative of how you see people of color. It's been in Hollywood for centuries. Black people have always been casted as slaves, as like less than powerful. Like we did never had power. It's it's interesting. So I don't know if you ever watch Asian Boss. It's a show on you. No. They went to Korea and they interviewed folks who saw Black Panther. Um, and you heard comments like, I never knew that Black people could be powerful until I saw this film. Oh, yeah. Because most of the that we saw from the West showed them as slaves or less than, or even in our history books, they're described as less than. Right. So we love white people. Like we, we were taught to love white culture. It's so interesting and fascinating. Oh, yeah. I mean, I lived in China oh, and I had African friends, black African friends who I would go out with. And I mean, people would literally gather around us staring at us. Yeah. And early on, just to give you some examples, early on living there, because it was like 2007, I would have people come up to my grocery cart and they'd pull food out of it to look and see what the foreigner was buying. And people would touch my hair and do all kinds of weird things. And that was very strange. So, so So it's kind of part of the experience there as a foreigner, but there was some pretty profound stuff. And then, and then even like I had friends who I told this story on a previous podcast, I had friends who moved here from another country and it was years and years and years ago. Like we went to welcome them and say hi. And we were talking about something and they said something that was pretty racist. And we were like, guys, what like what are you talking about? They'd been in the country maybe a month. Yeah. And they but what we had to realize in that moment is they were going off of what they learned. What messages does America export about people? And so I'm not surprised to hear that at all. Yeah. And it's just I think disheartening because while this chapter is fake racial news, I think when you said how like when you start to see images and read words and start getting messaging from Black people, how the narrative happenly starts to begin to change for you, mm-hmm. that, could, that can shift. It shifts something, right? It, it moves more away from white supremacy and sees the humanness of other people and other cultures. I wanted to read something, in, and it's from chapter it's from chapter five, but it's page 131. And she says, as a friendly reminder, there is nothing new about the normalization of white supremacy in the United States. White supremacy is in the air we breathe or don't breathe. Mm -hmm. It's embedded within our major institutions, our political economy, definitions of citizenship, our cultural codes and expectations, the way resources are distributed and our psychological biases. White supremacist social arrangements and beliefs are woven into the fabric of our everyday lives. White supremacy is, in fact, so normal, so systemic, pervasive, and taken for granted that it is almost never acknowledged, much less opposed, by members of the majority population. 
Thus, the idea that white supremacy ceased to exist in the distant past, but then suddenly became normalized in the last few years, is on its face a lie. One sustained primarily by the KKK fallacy, which you had mentioned earlier, yeah. as well as the political fallacy outlined previously. So I feel like that's important for people to hear, uh, particularly, you know, maybe well-meaning white people listening to this who are thinking, you know, do I really have something that I need to address or work on? Does this conversation include me? I feel like that just breaks that open for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for reading that. That's actually a pretty powerful point in this chapter. Yeah, I had that one underlined and thought that was that was a really key point from this chapter. So is there anything else from this chapter that stood out to you? The whole chapter, like this whole book. Why? <laughs> Look at me. Right? Why are you asking me? I'm having such a hard time. Um, pick and choose, pick right, and choose. Like pick and choose, pick and choose. She talked about Peggy uh, McIntosh. So she says, 30 years ago, Peggy McIntosh, a well-known white anti-racist scholar, wrote an influential and powerful essay about the invisible knapsack of white privilege. And most recently, she updated her very long list of unearned advantages to include critical reflections on the media. Um, it says, the men of my race who took $400 billion in the 1994 U.S. SNL scandal are not branded as criminals or seen as enemies of the U.S. That's part of this list of unearned advantages. I am allowed to believe and encouraged to believe that people of my race in general, law abiding rather than law breaking. TV shows and films show people of my color as main defenders of the law and order, cleverest detectives, best lawyers and judges, and wiliest outlaws. Portrayals of white males on TV, portrayal of white males on TV as criminals and violent individuals do not incriminate me as Caucasian. These males, even the outlaws, are usually presented as strong men of the American type. The voiceovers of criminals, shifty individuals, and villains in Disney films and in ads rarely sound like people of my racial or ethnic group. And illegal acts by the U.S. government in the present and in the past around the world are not attributed by whites to Caucasian immorality and illegality. These reflective insights provide a useful model of what anti-racist media literacy can look like. Because awareness is the very first step, one of the most critical things we can do is take stock of the messages and images we absorb from the media that we consume. What happens when we begin to acknowledge what is being said and not being said about our groups and others? What steps can we take to divest from the challenge, the fake racial news and alternative facts of white supremacy? And how can we actively support organizations, writers and publications seeking to shift the racial status quo? So what I have highlighted kind of speaks to that large amount of uh, time we just spent talking about. Yeah. And then I have on page 152 highlighted when it comes to the fine art of not giving a fuck about black people and other people of color. The New York Times is really in a league of its own. And she talks about this open ed piece that asks, is there a case for Marine Le Pen? Um, and that is a white nationalist who came in second place in the French election. Um, and you can read a little bit more about it there. But the, the New York Times is actually one of the most white supremacist <laughs> uh, media outlets in this country. And right. I'll and yeah, it would never say it was. Oh, no. They're right? super liberal, super progressive. They're they're not. Right. They don't they don't fall in the black and white binary. They just state the facts. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
Yeah, she really spent some time breaking down her problem with the New York Times. And I thought it was incredibly insightful, you know, and highlighted some of the things that a lot of people would just not even notice. It just seems like lots of media outlets, including the New York Post, are participating in white supremacy racism. Journalists don't do their homework. It's their duty to find the truth in the articles. Right. Well, and the thing that I try to communicate to people in this, like when people get all up in a tizzy about a definition of racism and if you're calling them a racist or white supremacy and, you know, they they get worked up about this stuff. The thing that I try to go back to is just very basic history. Let's just look at history. Let's take it head on and address it. Let's admit that we are a part of this system and that as such, we have a role to play in this. And it makes perfect sense that every single organization and institution and newspaper and media outlet and you name it, churches, like you were saying earlier with the evangelical church, the feminist movement that was co-opted, you know, all of these things are going to reflect the very thread of white supremacy that's woven through it. So to me, this is, an uh, again, an out pouring of that. Yep. Right. right. Absolutely. All right. So did you have anything in chapter six, Interracial Love 101? It was a good chapter. I'll just read the first sentence because I thought this was really good. One of my biggest pet peeves is hearing people perpetuate the absurd idea that centuries of racial terrorism and systemic domination can be undone by holding hands or copulating across the color line and singing Kumbaya. Again, I think that kind of leads into what I was saying earlier. It is what it is. Is, and it's a part of the fabric. And as such, it is going to impact every aspect of life. Whew. Yeah, interracial, interracial love, is, it's, an, it's an interesting one. Um, this chapter, I, I did highlight the part um, where, at, where Common advocated on The Daily Show. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He says that The Daily Show in 2015, the rapper and actor Common shared his hot take on racism. In an attempt to reflect on the power of reconciliation, he told Jon Stewart, if we've been bullied, we've been beat down, and we don't want it anymore. You, We are not extending a fist, and we are not saying you did us wrong. It's more like, hey, I'm extending my hand in love. Let's forget about the past as much as we can. Let's move forward from where we are now. Me, as a Black man, I'm not sitting here like, hey, white people, y'all did us wrong. We know that existed. I don't even have to keep bringing that up. It's like being in a relationship and continuing to bring up the person's issues. Now I'm saying, hey, I love you. Let's move past this. Come on, baby. Let's get past this. Um, And she goes into how, how wrong that is. Like, it's not about like, hey, let's get past this. And that's like the delusional, like she's calling it the delusion that interracial love will save us from white supremacy that'll go away. So common saying that is problematic because it's not just, hey, I love you. Let's move past this. It's like, hey, I love you. And (laughs) this is the systemic history that I've experienced from your ancestors. And how are you doing your work? And this is how, you know what I mean? It's like this open conversation. We have to, we have to acknowledge this system that exists before we, it's not, let's just move past it because you can't unlearn this broken system. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, I found that really interesting when she talked about that. And I see that a lot, you know, like just well-meaning people who are, you know, trying to espouse some sort of higher thinking or vibration or feeling. (laughs) 
my favorite is in interracial relationships, the idea of not being color, colorblind racism. Right. Yeah. All right. So what did, what did you think of chapter seven? Becoming racially literate. You know, I loved it because this is where she concludes with key steps on how to figure out how we can best leverage our knowledge and skills to help humanity. Like it's her perspective solution on how we can be racially literate. And she says uh, on, I have highlighted on page 180, becoming racially literate is becoming less stupid about race. And it evolves developing our critical thinking, increasing our awareness of how race permeates our lives, forming meaningful relationships across difference and using our knowledge to organize for anti-racist transformations. And it requires brutal honesty. Um, that part of the chapter really stood out to me because oftentimes we take kind of a, we want to be gentle, the gentle approach, um, which is necessary, but yet we have to face this with brutal honesty and you can be brutally honest and still be gentle, but be real in this work. And racial oppression is a complex subject. And so the key, the steps that she's given in this book to be racially literate are very impactful. And they're, and they're, for me, I would say they're simple because it's, I'm, I guess because I've been doing this work my whole life, I won't say since I started Check Your Privilege, the steps are relatively simple. And I think for me, it's easier because I'm kind of a, a shit disturber. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and I've always been that way since I was younger. So yeah. So in the chapter, there were 10 points of action yeah. that she shared. It, was there anyone in particular that really stood out to you where you were like, yes, I have found in my work, this is key? No, for me, it's all 10. It's all 10. Okay. So it's the relinquished magical thinking. Um, we, should, we can deep dive on. Um, critically assess your racial socialization. Start or join an anti-racist study group <laughs> or share what you learn about systemic racism. Empower young people to understand racism. Recognize and reject false equivalencies. Disrupt racism racist practices, get organized, support the work of anti-racist organizations, educators, and activists, like all 10 steps in here, yes. like are meaningful to me. And I'm actually engaged in almost everything of my mm-hmm. life. Yeah. When, it, when I saw the 10 steps, I'm like, this is you. You are so good with, here are the practical things that can be done. This is what we do. Step one, step two, step three. Yeah. So I really found this helpful. And I really appreciated that because, you know, how to become less stupid about race is a huge, huge, subject, right? And like she said early in the book, understanding critical race theory is a really good endeavor. And it's a very challenging one. But like you said, she did it. And she broke it down in a way that I didn't even realize I was learning critical race theory. But when you said that, I'm like, yeah, she really did. She really broke it down in a simple way for people to understand. And then this list at the end, here's what you can yeah, do. Yeah. So are there any of those that you want to take a deep dive um, on? Yeah, let's see. Awesome. Let's deep dive on uh, amplifying the voices of Black women, Indigenous women, and women of color. Yeah. Um, All right. Which number, number is eight. that? Okay. I'm, I'm going to it. You can hear the pages turn here. All right. <laughs> And she says, you may be wondering why I didn't just say amplify the voices of Black people and people of color. Well, the reality is that men's voices are still amplified over women as a matter of course. Now, I'm going to pause here. And why this is important is that when you read White Fragility, I don't have the book in front of me. Mm -hmm. I think I saw in her book, she quoted either Toni Morrison or Alice Walker once, but there are tons of quotes from Tanache Coates, right? Ah, so there right. is, and I'm noticing a trend too, because we are so rooted in patriarchy, 
when a black man speaks, yes. we amplify his voice more than when a black woman speaks. And so mm-hmm. I find this point to be very powerful that we have to lift up and learn the need to center intersectionality and lift lifting up and learning from non-white women and femmes, particularly disabled women, queer women, trans women, working class and poor women, queer queer women of color. We can't afford to collectively treat this unique oppression of Black women and women of color as a side issue or keep on crowning an interrupted series of Black and brown men as spokesperson for the race problem. And it's true. Because if you look at most of the quotes, even the ones I'm guilty of this, putting on social media, are Black men. I'm learning Mm -hmm. for myself to even, I'm going to amplify Bell Hooks. I'm going to amplify Crystal Fleming. I'm going to amplify Kimberly Crenshaw. I just got another yeah. black woman who coined the phrase reproductive justice. I don't even know if people know that, right? But how do we provide right. the voices of women of color so that you know that we exist and we create movements and intersectionality is not a phrase that's just coined by a bunch of white feminists. It came from this black woman who lived who lives in social Southern California. You know right. what I mean? Like it's it's definitely time. So it's about reading and supporting the work of a wide variety of racially marginalized women. Janet Mock, Lorraine Hansberry, Mona Elthaway, so many amazing Black, Brown, and Indigenous women of color have contributed to the movement, and we have to stop silencing their voices. And Toronto work in recent years for me is that perfect example of we have Melissa Milano, you know, tight, well, me too. And then I'll have to say, no, boo, no, 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 you didn't start this movement. We're going to center this Black woman who started this movement. Put her mm-hmm. at the forefront of this because I think we're tired. We're tired of amplifying our voices only to have them minimalized and right. co-opted by white women and or have our black men amplified over us. For you then, number eight was powerful. It? It, it's the one that I would highly, that speaks volumes to me. And that's, that's something that mm-hmm. I, I love seeing women of color voices amplify. It, it, yeah. As do I. And that's why I was really excited about this book and having not just, I wasn't just excited that it was a black author, but a black female author. I mean, that was the thing because I've got a lot of books here that we're going to go through and few of them are women. And so I'm kind of like, all right. So anytime I have a woman come on, I'm just like, yes, I'm very excited. Super amazing. What now for you in this chapter, which point stood out for you? Um, let me see. I highlighted all of them and I really felt, I, I would say the, the thing for me that was kind of new or different was number one. And it's this concept of magical thinking, relinquish magical thinking. She says, this one's hard, really hard, but it is so important that I'm listing it first. People often tell me things like, you'd think our society would be over racism by now. I want to respond, why? Because you've been personally working to end it or because you thought someone else would do the work you're not doing? Listen, I know it's tempting to wish racism away, to just sort of assume that there's an inevitability to progress. But if you want to be less stupid about race, you need to let that shit go right now. There is no quick fix for racism. Go back and read that sentence. Then tell a friend. There's no quick fix. None. There are lots of reasons why people persist in believing against all evidence that racism can be magically erased. They may conclude that since racism doesn't look like it did 400 years ago, that it will eventually disappear, like diseases we've eradicated. Alas, no. So the idea 
is not new to me. But the term magical thinking with regard to this, I just thought it was so brilliant and so important because I hear this so much and I hear this from contemporaries, you know, like women my age and younger who say, oh, there must, you know, it must have been the old people or something. There was, for example, there was this situation where I was in a local donut shop and these gentlemen were sitting around and they were talking and they were having this conversation and it was really ridiculous. And I was like, I, I can't even figure out a way to enter into it because they were all talking amongst themselves. So I share something about it. I don't even remember at this point on social media. And people responded by saying, oh, yeah, those old people. You know, one, I think that's dehumanizing. I don't think it's okay to say things that are unkind against an entire like age of people, mm -hmm. right? But at the same time, it's foolish because it perpetuates this idea that this is something that will die out. And I know that Oprah said something about this. Do you recall? Do you ever like listen to Oprah or are you familiar with when I, she said this? So there was this time where Oprah said, you know, Unfortunately, some of this stuff is just going to have to die out. And it was this huge controversy because people were all fragile about it and offended that, you know, and claiming that she said that people should die, which was ridiculous. That's not what she was saying. But on the other hand, like I felt like what she said resonated. I'm like, yeah, I feel like there's a truth to that. But the more that I've been digging into this work, the more I realize like, no, it just changes. It adapts. It shifts yeah. like maybe the venomous, hateful, spiteful, bigoted racism can die out in a sense. But that doesn't mean racism is dying out. No, it's not. It's alive right? and well. Yeah. So so I really liked the way she worded this, like, stop magical thinking. Yeah. I think that is so it's, key. It is. And I like the way she kind of ends it where she gives kind of ideas of how to sustain your work for the long haul, mm -hmm. which is like building up your reserves of resilience, self-care, community care, and courage, nurture your capacity mm -hmm. for hope, humor, love, and connection, even in the midst of oppression. For her, she says, Crystal says, um, Dr. Crystal, <laughs> what keeps her going is a deep and abiding commitment to sp a spiritual practice and experience of mm -hmm. God's presence, not in a specific church, temple, or place of worship, but in every phase and in every situation I encounter in life. And laughter helps too, as well as friendship, meditation, nature, and really good wine. Mm. <laughs> and I think, you yep. know, at first when I saw the chapter on like relinquish magical thinking, I was like, yeah, this is for all those spiritual bypassers who just say, pray it away or manifest it away or meditate it away. But it's a right. little deeper than that. Yeah, that's a great, just a great point to kind of finish yeah. on. Um, and, and so for you, do you have any other things that you want to share from this? No, I, I just really want to encourage and empower folks to please go and purchase this book and hear racism from a sociologist perspective who is a woman of color. Um, right. Just please support the work of Dr. Fleming. I think that's, and read this book for yourself. Because the aha moments I got and the aha moments you might have got, Jennifer, they might get totally different aha moments. And um, to read a book that breaks down critical race theory for dummies, that's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> I think that's what why I fell in love with this book is it's like critical race theory for dummies. Yeah, I went to college. I'm still in college. But it makes so much more sense to me now. It gave me such a mm -hmm. basic framework for what what is race. What is white supremacy? What is white supremacy racism? 
and how it has just infected this entire world and community. Yeah. And then what we can do about Absolutely. it. Right. And how we can we can get involved and in what capacity we should get involved, I think will also be easier to determine for people when they get more of this information under their belt, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So for you, tell us where we can find you, follow you on whatever social media platforms, because we want to do that. I'm mostly active on Check Your Privilege on Instagram and at I am Myisha T on Instagram. Um, and that's I A M M Y I S H A T. Um, but yeah, you can find me on Instagram. You can find me online at www.checkyourprivilege.co or www.myisha.com. 